You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. We are in the Gospel of... Thank you. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure that we're all still on the same page, the same book. We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for roughly 70 more weeks. And so if you don't know where we are yet, um, flip to the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to pick up in verse 13 this morning. Um, If you're following along in your Matthew books, this is page 22. We're uh, doing the salt and the light passage this morning. Lord... We're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful that we get to study the Sermon on the Mount, where you spoke to the multitudes and you explained a lot of things about your kingdom and how disciples are supposed to live. I pray this morning as you use very tangible examples of how disciples are supposed to live, that they would make sense to us this morning. Some analogies in scripture seem um, based in culture long past, but salt and light still exist in today's world and a lot of times in the same fashion. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to your word this morning. Might we learn what it means to be salt and light for you in a world that desperately needs both. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Um, The song is still going in my mind. It's a great song. Okay. Um, So the Beatitudes, which we talked about last week, were blessings, right? We learned that the word Beatitude meant blessing or benediction. Um... And it's the way that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, simply by blessing people. He gathered people together, and he didn't say, "Um, now I expect you to do something. He just said, I'm so glad you all are here. Let me bless you all. Let's just get started with some good blessings. Let this be a joyful time. And individually, those are wonderful blessings. If you take them one and then the other separate of all of them, they're good encouragements to the believer and non-believer. But last week, we learned that they're kind of sandwiched together. Um, the way that Jesus spoke them, there's um, a promise at the beginning and a promise at the end, and it's the same. And so we need to pay attention to what's in between those two promises. And the promise was inherit the kingdom, the, um, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom, and those who are persecuted will inherit the kingdom. And so everything in between there is important to read together. And we realize that they paint a picture of the order of salvation. From the moment that one person realizes their sin through the confessing of their sin and being saved, maturing in their faith, having a a hunger for more things like God, growing in the Lord, being sanctified, and ultimately living a life that is sacrificial to the Lord. And so we see that the Beatitudes show us not just great blessings, but also the blessing of living a life of discipleship that goes on towards maturity continually. It's the plan that God has for growing and maturing kingdom disciples. The Beatitudes encourage the disciples to run countercultural in their thoughts and actions, right? Remember this? They substitute joy for mourning. The last became first. Giving of grace when it wasn't deserved by people. Everything Jesus called the disciples to be and to do was countercultural. It swam upstream, um, and it did for them in that day and age, and it does for us now. So it would be really easy for the disciple of Jesus Christ, to get the idea that Christ followers should abstain from the world, right? If we're running countercultural, if everything that we're doing is supposed to be not what the world is doing, I shouldn't really be engaged in the world. 
because I might get tainted, I might struggle, I might not do well. Therefore, I should abstain from the world. I should run away from the culture that is so evil, and I should isolate myself so I can be holy unto the Lord. But that is not what Jesus means when he says, run countercultural. Um, this is, this is kind of the idea that religious groups get when they pull away and isolate themselves to keep themselves pure. Purity based on an action of withdrawal is not what Jesus meant. In fact, one could argue that that might be a sinful action. The Beatitudes call people to a countercultural living, and it's followed up with this idea of salt and light. So he says, be countercultural. But with this salt and light passage, you must be in the world while you're being countercultural. I'm expecting you to live differently in the world, but you cannot abstain from living in the world. And if you abstain from living in the world, you will not function as salt and light. You can't be salt and light as an isolated Christian off in the corner of the world. You must be immersed in the world, the sinful world, the dirty world, the nitty-gritty world, because that is what Jesus did, right? He was not so holy that he abstained from the world. Rather, he was so holy that he came to the world and lived in and amongst the sinners so that we might know holiness. These metaphors of salt and light raise important questions about how Christians should be involved in the world around them. We must remain active and not passive, even though we run against the grain. It's our very difference that causes attention to be brought to us. And when it does, we have an opportunity to seize for God. Remember, Jesus is an opportunist. Crowds show up and he does what he does. So when we act like God wants us to act, enabled by his Holy Spirit, counterculturally living, people go, what? And suddenly the spotlight is on us and we have an opportunity to demonstrate Christ to the world. I want to give you guys some basic information on salt. Okay? We need to understand what salt is before we can understand how to be the salt of the earth. And I know that sounds silly because we all have salt in our kitchens. But we don't understand salt like the ancient Near East understood salt. So I want us to understand salt like perhaps the day of Jesus did. Um, oh, oh, yeah, there's the review slide. Okay, um, One step behind this morning. Beatitudes, blessed, that you're uncountercultural, they're not emotional feelings, realities of kingdom life. We talked about that last week. Um, here's the map that I've been showing you for the past couple weeks, okay? Um, because maps help me. Um, salt, in the days of Jesus, and free, uh, now, actually, comes primarily from the Dead Sea. So if you'll remember, Jesus is preaching up here. Sermon on the Mount is right about there, give or take. Okay, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. Okay, This is where the salty salt comes from, the Dead Sea. Um, the concentration of salt in the Dead Sea is ten times higher than that of any ocean on the face of the planet. It's three times as salty as the Great Lake in Utah, the Great Salt Lake in Utah. This is the saltiest body of water on the planet. Israel's proximity to the Dead Sea and its numerous salt pits throughout that area made salt a readily accessible commodity. And so salt in that day and age fulfilled a variety of important fu functions. It was, it was used for a multitude of things. It wasn't just a seasoning for your soup, okay? Um, it wasn't just something you so casually sprinkled on your dinner. There was much more weighty um, uses for salt. 
Salt was valued for its versatile uses. It was used for flavoring, okay, preserving food, healing, destroying, okay, liturgical uses, covenantal uses, seasoning, cattle feed, and for rubbing on newborn babies. I don't really understand that, but they did it. And I, so one of these days I'll look it up. Um, uh, I thought it was interesting. I'll just point this out to you. It's used for healing and destroying, okay? Um, I thought that this was fascinating. Healing in Ezekiel 16.4, if you're taking notes. Destroying in Judges 9.45 and Job 39.6. Um, when God told the people, listen, go through and ravage the land and destroy it so that nothing will ever grow again, what did they do to the fields? They salted the fields. Um, salt has so many uses, um, and, uh, and Jesus was speaking into these uses to the disciples because the disciples were hearing this context of uses. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, they're like, um, can you be a little more specific, Jesus? Do you want us to heal or destroy? Okay. Uh, do you want, do you want to, like, do we find new babies and do we rub our hands on them? Okay. I mean, these are questions that people would ask. You know there's always the guy in the crowd that's like, am I supposed to rub my hands on newborn babies? Okay. There's one in every group, and Jesus had 12 of them. Okay. So, uh, right. Um, so salt was used for quite a few things. Salt also had an extreme value. Um, because of the value of salt in every aspect of life, it was a prized possession. Um, it was used to pay soldiers. Do you know that the word um, salary is derived from the word salt? Um, because um, they used the word salarium. Um, it was called salt pay. And they paid their soldiers in blocks of salt, chunks of salt. When they were on the battlefield, you want to know why? Because their meat, their rations would go bad if they didn't have that salt to rub on the meat and preserve it. The soldiers would starve to death on the battlefield if they were not given their solarium, their salt pay. And so that trickles down through the ages. And now when you work, you receive a salary. And that's a derivative of the word and the use of salt in the days of Jesus. A little factoid for you, free for the day. Go share that with someone because it's fascinating. Okay, um, so salt had this great history in the day of Jesus. And then Jesus went ahead and said this thing, you are salt. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, salt does a few things, and I don't think that Jesus meant we were to do all of those things with our life. But I think he was drawing near to very important functions of salt. Um, Jesus tells us that we are salt, not that you could be salt, not that you might be salt, not that one day you will be salt, not that you can be salt on a day when it feels good, but when it's difficult, you can give up your saltiness, but that right now in this very moment, if you are a believer in Christ, you are salt. It's a definitive statement. There's no questions. It's just Jesus proclaiming a truth. Salt preserves. It's one of the main uses for salt. Of all of the uses that it had, salt preserves was the biggest usage of the day. And Jesus means this to you. You exist to bring glory to God 
by helping bring about the kingdom now. By preserving a people of earth for the kingdom of God. Okay? So, if in the day of Jesus, salt was used to preserve meat, say on the battlefield, and you would rub an inordinate amount of salt on your meat so that it didn't necessarily taste great, but at least you could still eat it, okay? Um, the meat did not decay. Corruption did not get into the meat because of the salt. So what Jesus is saying is, you are the salt, and the world around you is decaying, lost in sin, slowly crumbling and falling apart. And what you are to do is to take who you fundamentally are in me, Jesus says, and apply it to the world that is decaying so that they might be preserved in me and become salt and do the same. Does that make sense? You are to preserve the world around you in holiness, in Christ. What you bring to the world, which is Jesus in you, will help the world be preserved for eternity and persevere in the long run in this life that we live when things get difficult in trial and in triumph. But something else. Have you ever just sat down and ate a bag of potato chips? Think of popcorn. What must you have next to you when you're eating salty food? A beverage, right? Because salt makes you thirsty. As believers, you are salt. You are to make people, you are to live in such a way that people become thirsty for what you have. Wherever you go and whoever you interact with, people should be left with this, I want, I want more, of, I need something to quench that. Whatever that was, I need something more. That left me wanting something. And what you should leave them wanting is Jesus. Your role is to live in such a way as to cause people to be thirsty for God. When they see how you act and react when life comes your way, and then they wonder, why do you have that consistent joy when everything goes wrong for you? They become thirsty for something more than what they have. Salt creates thirst. So here's a little question for you if you're keeping track of questions to ask one another in an accountability group or over coffee or at your dinner table. Are your actions causing a thirst for people in those around you? But then Jesus says this thing about salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, the honest-to-goodness fact is it can't. When you look scientifically at what salt is, a, it can't become less salty than it is. It's like making a chair any less of a chair or this table any less of a table. Salt scientifically doesn't become less salty. But Jesus wants us to understand a point that when he says the word less salty, that's what it says in English. And we lose things when we change from Greek to English. The original language says, when salt becomes defiled, how can it fulfill its function? Um, the essence of, of the defiling here is um, they would gather salt together um, in, in big piles because they had so much of it in storehouses. But the part that would sit on the ground, the, the clay, earthen 
portion of the storage facility because they didn't have nice pallets and bags and things. The part that would sit on the ground, the bottom four to five inches, would become defiled with the minerals from the ground that would leach upward into the salt. And that salt, that bottom four to five inches, was not able to preserve meat anymore. It had become defiled to the point that it didn't even taste the same. And so what they would do is they'd use up to that threshold, and then they'd sweep that threshold out into the streets because it was pointless. It was useless. It had no function anymore. It was no longer salt in their system. So Jesus is saying this to you. When it comes to you being salt, you need to be cautious not to become defiled, not to mix with your faith things that do not need to be there. Okay? Um, not, um, let, me, let me say it this way. The essence of this, if Christianity exists only in name, if your faith only exists in your words, um, if it contains less of Jesus than the scriptures allow for, um, or more than Jesus, then scriptures permit for salvation. And there's a fine line there because Jesus does, or the scriptures don't allow any less than Jesus and any more than Jesus. So if you understand what I'm saying is if you removed anything from scripture or added anything to scripture, your salt has lost its saltiness. If a Christian believes that there are more paths to the Father than Jesus, you're in that four-inch layer of salt that's been defiled. We must not lose saltiness. We must not just talk the talk without walking the walk, okay? Um, we must be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And we must have sound theology to go with it. We must understand who Jesus is and what he calls his disciples to do. And often this passage is taught on, um, dialogued about, debated in commentaries when it says, how could salt lose its saltiness? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out. Commentators will say, this is a great way in which Jesus is saying you can lose your salvation. That you can become so defiled to a point that, um, and I think you could lean in a direction in that passage, but I'm not exactly sure that's what Jesus is getting at here. The question is not, can saints totally lose the grace which makes them a blessing to their fellow men? I don't think that's the question. The question that Jesus is saying is not, can a man lose his grace and then have it restored to them? The question is that since living Christian and since Christians are the salt of the earth, if men lose the saltiness that is their faith, what's going to replace it in the world? What is going to fill that void? The fact of the matter is there is only Jesus. Only Jesus can provide the salt. So we must believe that Jesus will sustain the believers to be the salt. Does that make sense? Um, I don't think Jesus would set up a system in which he says, you're the salt of the earth and you're going to go preserve the earth and I'm not going to enable you to do that. So what he's saying is, listen, I want you to be the salt of the earth, but if you're going to be the salt of the earth, there's a way in which you must live and it must be close to me at all times so that you do not sit close to the ground lest you struggle and become less salty. But stay closer to the top of the pile so that you can constantly be refreshed with my spirit. Okay? Um, believers who fail to arrest the decay around them, believers who fail to build the kingdom, become worthless 
as agents of change and redemption in the world around them. And Christianity might make its peace with the world. It might avoid persecution, but it's rendered impotent to fulfill its divinely assigned role. In this, Christians can become indistinguishable from the people around us. What if Christians no longer mourned over sin? What would that say about Jesus on the cross? What if Christians no longer hungered and thirsted for righteousness or a further knowledge of the scripture or a deeper prayer life or a healthier family? What if we live in such a way that we say one thing but live another way? How will we be salt if we do those things? It is only as we live out the Beatitudes in the preceding verses that we can become the influence God wants us to be. Remember, the Beatitudes are um, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin because they're um, they're so sad in the presence of God about how their sin has offended God. Blessed are the meek, the ones who are gentle. These are the ways that God has called us to live like salt. Christians are called the salt of the earth because of salt's penetrating and preserving and thirst-making power in a lost world. And Jesus used the word you. Y-O-U. It is spelled in the English anyway. And it's a plural word. It's like y'all, okay? It could have better been translated that way. You all, y'all, everybody. Jesus looked out among the crowds and he said, Y'all are the salt of the earth, okay? Now, this plural word um, is plural down through the generations. He wasn't speaking just to the people that were there that day. He was speaking to everyone who would come to believe in him from that point forward. And it's also an emphatic word, meaning it's a statement of fact. You all are the salt of the earth, period. Jesus could have ended the sermon there. Believers are salt. It's not an option. The only choice that you have is what type of salt you will be. Are you salt that will be useless because you are allowing other things to defile your witness? Or are you salt that is useful and you're striving and you're hungry? You not only have a thirst because you're so salty, but you inspire others to have a thirst as well. Jesus is very clear. You are the salt of the earth, and the lost are watching. And those two must be said side by side. You are not salt of the earth for your own well-being. You are salt of the earth because the lost are watching. But he also said this, you are the light of the world. Um, Jesus is the light of the world, right? We read that in John 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Okay, so Jesus is the light of the world. But now he's saying, you are the light of the world. So there's this little bit of transfer that's going on here. He's using the plural, emphatic usage that he used with salt. You all are the light of the world. He's not giving believers the option to be light or not be light. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are a light bearer of Christ's light. The same way that is if you have, standing on the side of the road, witnessed a car accident, you are a witness to that car accident. You cannot unwitness what you have seen. 
what you do with that witness makes you a good witness or a bad witness, a faithful witness or an unfaithful witness. You can choose to truly state what you have seen and bear testimony to what you've seen on the side of the road, or you can step away and choose not to witness because you don't want to get involved in the court case that's going to come from the seven-car pileup. Okay? The same applies to our faith. If you are a believer in Christ, you have witnessed what he has done for you. Now you can choose to be a useful witness or an unfaithful witness. You can choose to keep your light hidden or to shine it. And as lights in the world, disciples were called to bring illumination to a dark world. But it's necessary to, um, to state this. Um, as lights in the world, they were supposed to, as Jesus said, be the light. But Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy, right? Because the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, that was earlier in Matthew, quoted from, I believe, Isaiah. And then later Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So the title light, light of the world, is distinctive to Jesus. It's something that he gives himself, and it's a title used for him and him alone. So much so that not even the prophets were able to take that. John the Baptist, um, it says, he was, the, um, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So John the Baptist, being one of the greatest um, prophets that has walked the face of the earth, right preceding Jesus, he says, I'm not the light, the light is coming. So what does it mean when Jesus says, you are now the light? Do you get your own light? Do you shine your own identity before mankind? No. You shine Jesus' light. You are, in essence, light bearers or light reflectors, if you will. You take the Jesus light, and it becomes your light. You don't go, I see Jesus' light, and now I'm going to light my own fire and bear that torch wherever I go. You bear the light of Christ, not your own light. So he's telling the disciples to take upon them what is his and shine that in a dark world. And he says that light shines, it is not hidden. So be a witness, shine your light. Um, Jesus uses this example of people having a lamp and putting it under a basket versus putting it on a stand so that the house might have light. We don't live in houses like they lived. So it's kind of hard to understand putting a lamp on a stand in a room and it lighting the whole house because we have multiple stories and walls that divide the house. In the day of Jesus, houses did not look like that. This was the common first century Jesus' day house. Two stories, okay? The bottom story was where you kept the animals, and there was um, usually a small kitchen and storage downstairs. Um, can you imagine having your kitchen next to the barn? Open air, right? Healthcare uh, kinds of things make you worry there. But anyway, um, there was an open air courtyard, there was a kitchen and a barn, and then upstairs was the living space. Um, and so that's where everybody lived. Now, I don't know if you can see this down here. Um, the, uh, the size comparison to a double-wide mobile home, which is 24 wide and 60 long, the average first-century house was 24 wide, 24 long. It's a little 24 by 24-foot house, small. And they lived multiple generations in one home. So one lamp put in the room would be suffice to light up the entire thing. So Jesus says, listen, don't put your light under a basket. 
put it on a lampstand um, in your house that the whole room can see. Now, the houses were built of stone, one to two stories, um, and, uh, and there was a lampstand in the wall, in the wall, a little stone that would jut out in the middle of this upstairs room. So we'll say it's right there where the green dot is, okay? A little stone that would jut out, and they would put a lamp on it. Now, this lamp was earthenware, um, kind of a bowl that was pinched on one end, okay? Um, and they would fill it with oil and have a wick that comes out of the side. Very simple, right? And they would put this on this little ledge that would jut out of the house, and it would light up the room. But this was this statement that Jesus made. You have this lampstand in a house so that the world can see. Jesus' original hearers would have thought, this sounds a lot like the tabernacle. This sounds a lot like the place that I go to worship. Um, Here's a picture of the tabernacle as a whole, okay? Um, and they would enter through the curtain, and there would be the, the slaughter tables and the sacrificial, you know, and the, the wash basin. And then there would be this inner area, okay, the, the holy place. And then the holy of holies in here where the Ark of the Covenant was. But in the holy place was a lamp, okay? And that lamp burned bright. This is the golden lamp stand, okay? And it was a menorah and there were flames on it, so forth and so on. And that lamp outside the Holy of Holies was to signify it always burned, never went out. Signify that God's presence was with you always. He was the light of the world even then. And it was a way that we could see a picture of Jesus prior to Jesus arriving. So that when Jesus arrives, he can say, hey, you know that light that burns in the tabernacle that has burned forever and always since the days I freed you from Egypt, that symbolizes me. And now I want that to symbolize how you act in the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and that's been burning for a very long time. And now I'm passing that light onto you. Do you understand the correlation is what Jesus is saying? I am the light of the world. It works in the tabernacle. It works in your house. Okay? So they've seen that the lamp, the light, the tabernacle, Jesus... They're all, they're all one, big, one big picture. So Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. Your light should always be on. Like my light, Jesus says. It never goes out. My light never goes out. Your, night le- your light never goes out. You don't get to turn it off when it's convenient for you. You don't get to turn it off when you've had a bad day. You don't get to turn it off when you're not feeling good. You don't ever get to turn your light off. This light was never supposed to be put under a bushel in the early Israeli houses, right? Um, The bushel was um, an earthenware pot that was used to measure bushels of grain, okay? Um, Now I'm not even, we'll just, there's no picture for this, okay? Um, But it was an earthenware pot that was used to measure grain. They would go to the threshing floor and let the wind sift the wheat from the tares, and they would gather their bushel of wheat in this measuring pot. Um, you put your good wheat in the measuring pot, and you brought it home. So what Jesus is saying is don't take something that has a purpose and use it to cover up something else because you need the light to see the harvest and bring it in. Okay? Does that make sense? There's something deeper here that I, I'm, I'm still processing in my brain, but you need the light so that you can see the harvest. But if you're using the elements by which you bring the harvest in, 
to cover up the light, not only is your light diminished and you can't see the harvest, but you have no way of bringing it in because the bushel's covering the light. There's something, I don't have that all the words formulated yet, but there's something there that's deeper that I kind of want to dig in. The Lord was showing me this week. Um, chew on that. If the Lord reveals something to you about the bushel and the light, uh, there's something there. So let me know if the Lord shows something to you. And I think that there's something interesting there. But here's another factoid for you. Something that just blew my, blew my mind this week. Um, Jesus said this. Don't hide your light. Put it on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. Guess what that word house is in Greek? Just guess. I did this to my wife earlier. Someone said, what did you say? Close, very close. Oikos. <laughs> I love it when God does that. Um, the word for um, house that is translated house in the English is the Greek word oikos. So here's what Jesus is saying. You are a light for your oikos. Let your light shine so that the oikos, those 8 to 15 people that you are uniquely positioned in this world to minister to, that you have been praying for for months now, that you know by name, that you find ways to interact with, that you're inviting to Easter service, right? Um, you are a light to your oikos, your people, your home group, your, the people you see. That's just cool stuff. That's just, I love how God does that. Chances are, though, if you don't light your light and let it shine, your oikos won't see the light. You're probably, if you look at statistics of groups of people and how people interact, probably the only light for some of those people in your oikos. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. If you don't shine your light, they won't see if you don't demonstrate Christ and his love, they won't experience it. If you don't tell them of his great mercy, they won't hear it. And if you don't give them an opportunity to say, would you like to believe? They might never get that opportunity. Um, light works by illuminating. Um, like a city on a hill, Jesus says. Um, illuminating the dark countryside. Cities that day lived up on big hills, right? And the way that the houses were built out of the stones that they were built out of and the way that the city was constructed with the stones that it was constructed out of, it was reflective stone. So when all the, the houses in the cities put their lights in their well, light stands and the, temple, or the, um, the guard walls had their lights the city literally kind of glowed with this warm, inviting candlelight. It could be seen from afar because the city was on a hill, and it drew people towards the city as a place of refuge if they were traveling. Jesus says we're supposed to let our lights shine so that the world may see and praise God, so that the good works that we do might bring glory to God. You don't let your light shine so that you can receive the credit. Because it's not your light, technically, right? It's the light that God is giving to you, and it's God's light. So you're letting God's light shine, and you give him the glory for the good works that you do. Um, do I have good works? Yes, good works. Um, 
the good works that Jesus is talking about are the first fruits in keeping with repentance. Um, that's a, a quote from Scripture. And it means that the best way to shine your light, the best way to let your Christ light shine in the world, is to consistently follow the Beatitudes. Be poor in spirit and mourn your sin. Be humble. Repent and confess. That is primarily the greatest way to let your light shine. Do you want to know why? That's fuel for your light. When you stop confessing your sin, it's like going, because you're living a prideful life. You're that four inches of salt touching the bottom of the earth. And what you want to do is repent of your sin, and that fuels the fire in you. Let God's work be made known in you. In other words, when you see your sin, repent of it. This runs in the face of pride, and it's strikingly countercultural, and it will speak volumes to the people around you. So repentance first is a way to let your light shine. Secondly, um, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount um, expounds upon what it means to do good works for God. He spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount talking about these good works. So we'll spend you know, the next couple weeks talking about these good deeds. What he wants you to do is avoid pride because pride will diminish and dilute all of the things that he's calling you to be. It will diminish your light and it will dilute your saltiness. So God says, you are the salt of the earth. You are to make people thirsty for me. You are to preserve a generation blameless for me. You are the light of the earth. You are to shine in such a way that when people see you, they feel warmth and invitation. They know that grace abounds where you live because you have received it so you know how to give it. And then he says, do these good deeds for the glory of your Father. This is the first time that is recorded in Matthew that the people of Israel have heard that, G that God is their Father. We hear that all the time. We pray like that. We've grown up in Christianity, no matter how long you've been in it, under the idea that God is our Father. But that was not how Jews lived. Jews lived with this idea of God, and there was no, there was no personal, he's my Father concept. So Jesus says, listen, do good works for your Father in heaven to receive the glory. And all of a sudden, people are going, wait a minute, what? God is our Father? We can relate to him in this way. We can talk to him in this way. We do things for him because we love him and he blesses us because he's our father. It's a paradigm shift in how they understood God. First time Jesus used this term and it personalized God for the people. It said that they were children of God and it was this novel concept so that he was not this distant deity that must be pleased with sacrifices day in and day out, but that he was a personal father God who loves his children enough to send his son to die on the cross for the sins of the entire world so that they could all be adopted in one family as children of God. And that's like the gospel, right? Did you know the gospel was contained in the do good deeds to your father in heaven? That's the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all of the other children who didn't yet know him could receive him and that grace and forgiveness. What you believe determines how you live. 
And how you live determines how other people will view God. Let me say that one more time. What you believe, your value system, determines how you live. And how you live determines how other people will view God. I don't even know if I have that written. Nope, those are community questions. We'll get there. Both of these word pictures, the salt and the light, help us realize that the values we hold as citizens of Jesus' kingdom are to find expression in our behavior so that our differences from the men of the world will be made plain, right? We are to live in such a way that makes us look different. We're not to live in such a way that blends in. We're not to do what the world does. The world has Frisbees. Let's put Jesus' face on a Frisbee. The world has coffee cups. Let's put Jesus' name on a coffee cup. That doesn't really do anything. Christians aren't just supposed to be a shadow of the world. We are a reflection of the light of the world. We are to live in a way that says we are different, but we're humble. We're not to do that pridefully. Those who come to know us then will gradually realize that we are different because of our relationship with our Father who lives in heaven. And in doing so, the kingdom of heaven is to break through into the world that we live in today. Now, here, through you and through me. Remember, we talked about this early in the Gospel of Matthew. That Jesus said, John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is here now. Which means you can grab a hold of it and take it and make it your own and live in part of that kingdom. Therefore, as kingdom dwellers, as salt and light, you get to go help make the kingdom happen by throwing salt wherever you go and being light wherever you go and bringing the kingdom about wherever you go for the glory of God. So here's the things that we need to understand. We cannot fail to have a positive influence on the world that we live in. We must not fail to have a positive influence on the world we live in. We must not remain unnoticed. We must not slink silently into the night as Christians. But we must stand tall and say, we love Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. We will not back down from that. But we do that lovingly. We cannot let our salt become flavorless, defiled by other things that we allow into our worldview. We must not hide our light, but rather we must be a light to the oikos that we know. It is absurd to deliberately conceal one's light. Our relationship to the light of the world, Jesus, automatically makes us lights. And having light means shedding light. And it is ridiculous if we do not act as the light because the Christian life can and should not be hidden. Cannot and should not be hidden. Right? If you have testified to Jesus about your own forgiveness of sins, therefore you must be able to do that publicly, privately, and continually for the glory of God the Father. Here's the questions. Are you useful salt? Or have you allowed elements to render your salt useless? Are you on the top of the pile or the bottom of the pile? Does that make sense from that analogy? What things do or can you do to be salt in the lives of those around you? It's not just that we get to hear the message and go, we should be salt of the earth, and we're so excited about being salt of the earth, and then we walk out this door and we've never really thought about what that might mean for our daily actions. 
So I want you to think about what it will look like for you to be salty, to assault, I don't know, the people around you, okay? Um, that's a bad, bad joke. Um, in what ways do you shine your light? Same question as the salt one, right? Um, in what ways and in what circumstances do you hide your light? Because there are times and places that we all hide our light. In what ways do we do that? And then the challenge is, intentionally light up your oikos this week. If you've got them written down, um, then call every single one of them if you have that kind of relationship and you know their number. Stop by their work and just say hi. Um, invite them over for dinner. Intentionally light your oikos this week. And then intentionally give God the glory for everything. 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 Publicly, privately. Be thankful to God and give him the glory for the things that he's doing in your life. Develop that as a habit. How often do we pray? How often do we say, God, would you please bless this, do this, heal my stubbed toe, be with my Aunt Myrtle? Um, you know, all of these things that we pray for. But how often do we go back and say, God, thank you for being with my Aunt Myrtle. Thank you for healing that thing. Thank you for providing for that need. We must be sure to give God the glory lest we think we are our own lights and therefore our salt becomes defiled and our light diminished. 